Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi everyone, welcome to season three of Leaf by Lantern. I have some really fun episodes planned for this season, including topics like dragons and infidel tasks and gifts. I am very excited for today's episode, which for once features a fairy tale that actually fits the season we're in, the season of winter. And that tale is Hans Christian Andersen's literary fairy tale, The Snow Queen, with a guest, Casey or Kimberly Ireton. If you listen to the Little Mermaid episode from season two, you'll know that Kimberly did a theological reading of Anderson's Little Mermaid and the Snow Queen for the final project of her Masters of Apologetics at Houston Christian University. By theological reading, as Kimberly explained last time, she means, uh, paraphrasing a little bit, looking at the fairy tale through the lens of what does it say about our life with God and what it means to be human in relation to the divine. This lens will help any artist who wants to honor the theological elements of the original fairy tale when they retell it. First, I'll play the recording of Kimberly reading an abbreviated version of what is a fairly long fairy tale out loud. Then Kimberly and I will discuss four images from the fairy tale and how we can understand them theologically. We'll talk about the mirror, the rooftop garden, the roses, and the snowflakes. The Snow Queen by Hans Christian Andersen, retold by K.C. Ayrton. Once upon a time, the devil made a magic mirror. He was very proud of this mirror, for in it, all that was good and beautiful in the world was distorted and made to look small and ugly, and all that was bad and ugly would be magnified and look even worse and uglier. In the mirror, the most beautiful landscape looked blighted, and the most beautiful person seemed a frightful horror. And if anyone had a good or beautiful thought, the mirror would smirk and the devil would laugh. The devil's apprentices roamed through the world and gleefully held up the mirror to every person and every place on earth and laughed at its distorted reflection. One day, they decided it would be great fun to take the mirror up to heaven and hold it up to God to see what he would look like in the mirror. But as they flew higher and higher, the mirror began to smirk at the goodness of God. And the higher they flew, the more it smirked. And the more it smirked, the harder it was to hold on to, until finally the mirror grimaced so horribly that it was wrenched from their hands and plummeted to earth, where it broke into a million billion pieces. The tiny pieces of mirror, some hardly bigger than a grain of sand, flew around in the air and got into people's eyes. Then those people would see everything wrong, or have eyes only for what was bad in something, since every little speck of mirror had kept the same powers that the whole mirror possessed. Worse, some of the mirror pieces would penetrate a person's heart and the heart would turn into a lump of ice. Some years later, in a large town where the houses grew close together like trees, there lived a boy and a girl. Their names were Kai and Gerda. They were not brother and sister, though they were as fond of each other as if they had been. They lived in houses that were right next door to each other and high up in the eaves at the top of each house was a tiny flower garden. 
In two big wooden boxes, which spanned the rooftops between their two garret windows, each family grew herbs for cooking and a little rosebush. There was one rosebush in each box. During the long summer days, the children sat on two little stools beneath the roses and read or played happily. In winter, they could not go out to their garden, and if they wanted to visit one another, they had to go down all the stairs in one house and up all the stairs in the other. One evening, the children were sitting together with Gerda's grandmother. Look, said the old woman, and pointed at the snow falling softly outside the window. The snow bees are swarming. Kai had never heard of snow bees, but he knew that ordinary bees had queens, and so he asked, do they have a queen too? Indeed, yes, said the grandmother. She flies where the swarm is thickest, and never lights on the ground for more than a moment, but flies away on the wind. Many a winter night, she peeps in at the windows, and then the ice freezes into a pattern like flowers on the glass. Oh, yes, said the children. We have seen the frost flowers. Can the Snow Queen get in here? asked Gerda. Just let her try, said Kai, and I will put her on the stove where she will melt. Later that night, when Kai was at home in his bedroom, he stood on a chair and peered out the window. A few flakes of snow were falling, and the largest of them alighted on the edge of the flower box and began to grow and grow and grow until it became the figure of a woman dressed in a fine gauzy gown made of millions of starry flakes. She was beautiful to behold, but made of ice, glittering, dazzling ice, and she was alive. She nodded toward the window and beckoned with her hand. Frightened, Kai jumped from his chair, and the next moment it seemed a bird flew past the window. The next day was cold and frosty, but soon enough the thaw came, and after that, the spring. Once more, the children could meet on the rooftop in their garden. That year, the roses seemed to bloom more abundantly than ever, and Gerda taught Kai a little hymn. In the valley where the roses grow wild, there we will speak to the Christ child. They held each other's hands and looked into God's bright sunshine and spoke to it as if the Christ child were there. They thought it was heavenly to be outside near the fresh rose bushes that never seemed to stop blooming, and they sometimes kissed the roses for pure joy. One afternoon, the children were sitting under their roses and looking at a picture book when Kai suddenly cried out in pain. Oh, there is something in my eye and oh, a pain in my heart. Gerda put her arm around his neck and cried with him. Kai blinked his eyes. I think it is gone, he said, but it was not gone. It was a little shard of the devil's mirror that had got into his eye and another had gone straight into his heart. He looked at Gerda. Why are you crying? He demanded. It makes you look horrid. There's nothing the matter with me. And then he said with disgust, look, this rose has been gnawed by a worm and that one is crooked. How ugly they are. And he kicked the box and ripped the two roses off the bush. What are you doing, Kai? Gerda cried. And when he saw that she was frightened, he ripped another rose off the bush and threw it at her. Then he leaped across the box to his window and disappeared inside. The next time Gerda brought out the picture book, he said it was for babies. When the grandmother tried to tell stories, he would stand behind her, put on her spectacles, and imitate her. He became very good at imitating people. He could mimic all their oddities and foibles. He did it very well, and people laughed and said he was a clever boy. But it was all that bit of mirror in his eye and in his heart, which was slowly turning his heart to a lump of ice and making him cruel to Gerda, who was so devoted to him. He did not want to play with her anymore, 
for his games were different now. One winter's day, when the snow was falling, he brought a magnifying glass outside and held up the tail of his blue coat so the flakes would fall upon it. Now look through the glass, he said to Gerda, and she looked and saw that each flake was like a flower or a sharply pointed star. See how cleverly they're made, said Kai. Not a flaw in them. They are all perfect. If only they would not melt. Then he grabbed his sleigh, shouted in Gerda's ear, I've got permission to play in the square with the other boys, and ran off laughing. In the square, the boys would tie their sleds to the farm wagons and let themselves be pulled along the road. It was great fun. On this day, a large sleigh came along, its driver dressed in a white fur cloak and cap. Kai tied his sled to the back and let himself be pulled along. But when the sleigh left the square and entered the next street, it began to go faster, and then faster still, until it drove right through the gates of the town and out into the countryside. Then the snow began to fall thick and fast, so that Kai could not even see his hand before his face. He tried to untie his sled, but to no avail, for it was stuck fast to the sleigh. He cried aloud, but no one heard him, for the wind rushed past his face and carried his words away. Kai was scared. He tried to say the Lord's Prayer, but all he could remember were his multiplication tables. The snowflakes grew larger and larger still, till at last they looked like great white birds. The birds swooped to one side and the sleigh stopped. The driver stood and turned, and it was a lady, and her cloak and cap were made of snow. She was tall and thin and dazzlingly white. It was the Snow Queen. It is cold, she said. Come, sit under my bearskin. And she pulled Kai into the sleigh and placed the fur around him, and he felt like he was sinking into a snowbank. Then she kissed him on the forehead, an icy kiss, and for a moment he thought the cold would kill him, and then he forgot that he was cold at all. She kissed him again, and he forgot all about little Gerda and the grandmother and everyone else at home. Kai looked at her, and he could not imagine a lovelier or a more clever face. She no longer seemed to be made of ice, as when he first saw her through his window. To his eyes, she now seemed perfect, and he was not scared of her at all. He told her he could do figures in his head, even with fractions, and that he knew how many square miles were in all the countries and how many people lived there. She smiled at him, and it seemed to him then that he did not know enough. He looked upwards at the empty sky, and the sleigh raced on, carried along on the storm clouds, over forests and lakes, over seas and many lands, and beneath them the chilling storm rushed and thundered, and the wolves howled, and the screaming crows wheeled around them. High above them hung the moon, bright and clear, and Kai gazed at it through the long wintry night, but during the day he slept at the feet of the Snow Queen. Meanwhile, back at home, Gerda wondered where Kai had gone and where he could be. No one could tell her. The boys said only that he had tied his sled to a great sleigh that drove down the street and out of the town gates, but where he had gone, they did not know. At last, people said he was dead. He must have fallen through the ice in the river and drowned. The winter days were long and dark and bitterly cold, and Gerda wept as long and as bitterly. At last, spring came again, and sunshine. Kai is dead, Gerda mourned. I don't believe it, said the sunshine. Kai is dead, Gerda mourned. We don't believe it, said the swallows, and eventually Gerda did not believe it herself. I will put on my new red shoes, she said, the ones Kai never yet saw, and I will go down to the river and ask it what it knows about him. 
And she did. When she got to the river, she said, Have you taken my friend? If you have, I will give you my new red shoes, if only you will give him back. And she took off her shoes, her most cherished possession, and flung them into the river. But the shoes fell close to the shore and floated back to her on the little eddying waves, as if the river were saying, I cannot take these, because I did not take your friend. Gerda thought perhaps she had not thrown them far enough, so she climbed into a boat which lay among the rushes, and went to its furthest end, and threw the shoes as far as she could into the river. But the boat was not fastened, and her motion dislodged it, and it began to drift into the main current. Gerda tried to get back to shore, but it was too late. The boat was gliding down river. Perhaps, Gerda thought, the river is carrying me to Kai. Hours later, the river carried her to a cottage with a garden full of flowers. As the boat drew near the shore, Gerda called out, and an old woman came out of the cottage, leaning on a stick. She wore a broad-brimmed hat embroidered with flowers. "'Poor child!' the woman exclaimed, when she'd drawn Gerda onto the riverbank. "'Come and tell me where you've come from, and how you ended up on the river.' Gerda was a little afraid of the old woman, but she was glad to be on dry land again, and she told the woman all about Kai and asked if she had seen him. The old woman said she had not, but he was sure to come by and by, and in the meantime, wouldn't the little girl like some cherries? And she took Gerda by the hand and led her into the cottage and locked the door. While Gerda ate the cherries, the old woman took a golden comb and brushed Gerda's golden hair till it curled and shone around her sweet little face, which looked like a rose. And as the old woman brushed her hair, Gerda forgot all about Kai, for the old woman was a witch. Not a bad witch, just one who practiced magic very occasionally, for her own amusement, and right now she very much wanted Gerda to stay with her, for she had always wanted a little girl of her own. So she went out into her garden and stretched her walking stick toward the rose bushes, which were all covered with roses, and they sank into the ground, for she feared that if Gerda saw the roses, she would remember Kai and want to leave. She then took Gerda out to the garden, and Gerda found it delightful, but she felt that something was missing, though she could not say what it was. One day, Gerda was studying the old woman's hat, the one that was embroidered with flowers, and on it she saw a rose, which seemed to her the most beautiful of all the flowers. She went out to the garden. Are there no roses here? she asked, and she ran around the garden, but not one rose could she find. She sat down and wept, and her hot tears fell where a rose bush had sunk into the ground, and up it sprang, as fresh and full of roses as when it had been swallowed up. Gerda kissed the roses, and she remembered Kai. Oh, she cried, how long have I stayed here? I was supposed to be looking for Kai. Do you know where he is? She asked the roses. Do you think he is dead? He is not dead, the roses replied. We have been in the earth where all the dead are, and we have never seen him. Thank you, Gerda cried, and she ran to the garden gate. It was bolted shut, but the bolt was rusty, and she rattled the gate till the bolt loosened, and out she slipped into the wide world. It had been summer in the old woman's garden, but as she ran, she realized it was autumn. Fog shrouded the riverbank, and the willow leaves were all yellow. Oh dear, she cried, how long I have stayed. It was cold and dreary, and she had no shoes. After walking for many hours, Gerda was obliged to rest. Her feet were sore and weary and cold, for it had begun to snow. She sat down on a large stone, and after a while she became aware of a movement in the trees not far from where she rested. She looked up and saw a reindeer. Hello, she said. Good day, said the reindeer. Where are you going all alone? 
and Gerda told him and asked him if he had seen Kai. A fluttering above her head caused her to look up into the tree, and she saw two wood pigeons. They cooed at her, and one of them said, "'We have seen Kai. A white bird carries his sled, and he himself rides in the sleigh of the Snow Queen.' "'Oh!' cried Gerda. "'Do you know where she took him?' "'Perhaps to Lapland. It is always ice and snow there.' Asked the reindeer. He knows. Gerda looked at the reindeer. Ice and snow is there, he said, and beautiful shining valleys. The Snow Queen has her summer house there, but her winter palace is high up toward the North Pole in Finland. Do you know how to get there? Gerda asked. I was born there, said the reindeer. I leapt about in Finland's fields of ice and snow as a boy. Will you take me there? Gerda asked. With a right good will, said the reindeer. And Gerda wept for joy. She climbed upon the reindeer's back, and the reindeer flew over bush and bramble, heath and meadow, just as fast as he could go, and before Gerda knew it, they were in Finland. Suddenly, they stopped at a house. It had no door, so they knocked on the chimney, and a diminutive woman poked her head out, and when she saw them, she whisked them inside. Gerda was blue with cold, but the woman's home was so warm that by the time Gerda had finished telling about little Kai, both she and the reindeer were almost sweating. The woman said nothing. I know you are powerful, said the reindeer. Can you not give Gerda a potion that will give her the strength of twelve men so she can vanquish the Snow Queen? The strength of twelve men, said the woman. A lot of good that would do. But Gerda looked at her with such imploring eyes, and the reindeer pleaded so long and so loud that the woman finally took him into a corner. Gerda heard her whispering, "'Tis only too true that the Snow Queen has Kai in her palace.' He thinks the queen and her castle wonderful and just what he likes, but that is only because he has a splinter of glass in his eye and another in his heart. If these cannot be gotten out, he will never be human again and will remain enthralled to the Snow Queen forever. Can you not give Gerda something to make her more powerful than the Snow Queen? The reindeer whispered. More powerful? Can you not see that she has all the power she needs? Look how you wanted to help her, and the wood pigeons too, and how far she has come in her bare feet. Can you not see that her power lies in her heart? If she cannot get to the Snow Queen by herself and rid Kai of the glass, we cannot help her. The Snow Queen's garden begins two miles hence. You may take Gerda to the bush with the red berries, but no further. Leave her there and come back quickly. No talking. And she placed Gerda on the reindeer's back, and off he went till he reached the bush with the red berries. He set Gerda down in the snow, kissed her with the tears in his eyes, turned, and bounded away. And there stood Gerda in the ice and snow, without hat or gloves or shoes. She ran toward the palace as fast as she could. Suddenly, a whole regiment of snowflakes came. They did not fall from above, but ran along the ground toward her. And as they ran, they grew larger and larger. Gerda remembered how large and strange the snowflakes had looked when she saw them through Kai's magnifying glass. But these were truly enormous, and they were terrifying for they were alive. They were the Snow Queen's advance guard. Gerda prayed the Lord's Prayer aloud, and the cold was so intense she could see her own breath. It grew thicker and thicker, and formed into little angels that grew bigger and bigger when they touched the earth, until, by the time she had finished the prayer, she was surrounded by a whole legion, with bright helmets on their heads, and shining shields, and sharp spears in their hands. They thrust at the horrid snowflakes, which shattered into pieces, and Gerda ran on in safety toward the palace. Vast, cold, and empty were the halls of the Snow Queen, and at their center lay a frozen lake 
its surface shattered into pieces, each piece exactly like all the others. The Snow Queen called the lake the Mirror of Reason, and in the center of the lake stood her throne. It was empty now, for she had left Kai alone in the palace, while she flew off to the south to bring ice and snow. Kai was blue with cold, but he did not know it, for the Snow Queen had kissed away his shiverings, and his heart was little better than a lump of ice. He dragged several sharp, flat bits of ice across the surface of the lake and formed them into patterns and shapes. He was playing the ice game of reason, and to his eyes, the shapes were splendid and of the utmost importance. Sometimes he formed words, but he could never figure out how to form the one word he most wanted to make, the word eternity. For the Snow Queen had told him that if he could form that word, he would be his own master, and she would give him the whole world and a new pair of skates. But he couldn't do it. Alone in the Snow Queen's vast and icy palace, Kai looked at the pieces of ice and thought so hard that his mind groaned. There he sat, so stiff and still, you might have thought he was frozen to death. At that moment, Gerda stepped through the portal of the palace. The gate was formed of cutting winds, but she said her evening prayers, and the winds lay down as if they were sleeping, and she entered the vast, cold, empty hall. She saw Kai sitting in the middle of the lake, and she ran to him and embraced him. Oh, Kai, Kai, she cried. I've found you at last. Kai did not respond. He only sat there, stiff and cold. Gerda's hot tears fell onto his chest and sank into his heart and thawed the lump of ice and dissolved the splinter of mirror that had lodged there. And she sang the hymn. In the valley where roses grow wild, there we will speak to the Christ child. And Kai burst into tears, and he wept so hard, the shard of mirror rolled out of his eye, and he recognized her and shouted, Gerda, Gerda, where have you been? And where have I been? He looked around him. How cold it is here, how empty and cold. And he hugged Gerda tight, and she laughed for joy. Her gladness was so contagious that even the pieces of ice danced about for joy. And when they laid themselves down, they formed the letters of the word that Kai had been trying to make. So now he was his own master, and he would have the whole world and a new pair of skates. Gerda kissed Kai's cheeks, and they bloomed. They took each other by the hand and left the palace. And wherever they went, the wind ceased howling, and the sun burst forth. And when they reached the bush with the red berries, the reindeer was waiting for them, and he carried them to the border of the country. And Kai and Gerda walked hand in hand, and as they walked, a lovely spring arrived, with leaves and blossoms. And soon they came to a town, and they recognized it for their home, and they walked through the streets until they came to the grandmother's house, and as they went inside, they perceived that they were children no longer, but grown-ups. They climbed the stairs and stepped out onto the rooftop. The roses were in bloom, and under the rose bushes were their stools, and Kai and Gerda sat upon them, still hand in hand, and there sat the grandmother, in God's sunshine, reading from her Bible. Unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Kai and Gerda looked at one another, and they remembered the old hymn, In the valley where roses grow wild, there we will speak to the Christ child. And there they both sat, grown-ups and yet children at heart. And it was summer, warm, glorious summer. 
Hi, Kimberly. Welcome back to Leaf by Lantern. Hi, Alicia. I am so happy to be here. I'm so happy you're here. So ever since we talked last season, season two about The Little Mermaid, I've been just really excited to hear your thoughts about the Snow Queen and thinking about it. And uh, I probably won't talk about the Disney version, but thinking about the original tale and how a theological reading will help us uh, just experience that, that joy and that wonder uh, of a good story. So I am yes. very excited. I'm very excited too. This is a really beautiful story and has great images. Yes. Yeah. So we, you, you gave me four images that we can talk about. So as I was listening to your recording, I was thinking, Ooh, I'm, so I have some guesses based on what you said last time about where some of these could go, but I really am excited to hear. So you told me, like, let's look into the mirror, the rooftop garden, the roses and the snowflakes. And obviously they're all related. So they'll bleed into each other, which is fine. But yes. First, the mirror. I had not yes. remembered this at all from my from whenever I read this tale first. The devil's mirror. It distorts things. It shatters into a million pieces. It gets into people's eyes and hearts, which is terrifying. Yes, and yes it is. is <laughs> so sinister. So please tell me tell me about your study into that and, and what you found. Okay. Well, so this is this is a the frame story at the beginning of Anderson's tale. Um, his tale is actually in seven seven small stories, and this is the first one, and it's the origin and nature of evil. And so, for because we've got this mirror, and it's made by the devil, and its function is to distort things. So it whenever it's held up to anything, right, it distorts it. In the in the fairy tale. Anderson says that if it's held up to a person, that person has a freckle or a mole, the freckle or the mole seems to take up their whole face. And so it's just, it's also magnifying things. And I think that that's a really important thing that it distorts and magnifies and it magnifies whatever is ugly and minimizes whatever is beautiful. And so we have, and then when it gets into people's eyes, right, then they distort, their vision is distorted. And when it gets into their hearts, then their hearts turn into a lump of ice, which I think is really fascinating that that the eyes and the heart, the eyes are distorted, the heart is frozen. Because each speck of mirror has the same power as the whole mirror to distort or to um, magnify the wrong things, then it's going to be affecting people's ability to see clearly and also to think clearly. And we'll see this later with Kai when he gets the um, the speck of mirror in his eye that he's first missees things. And then later he can't think clearly. Like there's that scene where he's trying to remember mm -hmm. the Lord's prayer and all he can remember are his multiplication tables. Mm -hmm. And then later in the story, when he's trying to figure out how to spell the word eternity and he can't do it because, and it says that his mind groaned. I actually used that word from Tina Nunnally's translation because mm -hmm. I love the way that it has that imagery of like an iceberg or a glacier groaning. And so his mind has been frozen too. So it's not just the heart that turns to a lump of ice. It's actually the mind. So this devil's mirror, it distorts things, but it distorts things in order to freeze them. It distorts them in order to basically kill them so that you can no longer see clearly and eventually you shrivel up and die because you can't think and you can't feel. Oh, that's amazing. So that brings to mind a couple of things automatically. Um, in your master's project, did you look into Augustine's theory about evil, that evil is not like a, a thing in itself? It's a negative. It's a negation of the good because God made yes. everything good. Yes. And then evil is yes. just a rebellion. It can't make anything. So right. the idea of an evil mirror is actually 
so, like captures it so well because it's not making anything. It's twisting, right. interrupting it. Oh, that's so yes. good. It's really, yes. And I think that that's, um, we'll talk a little bit later about magnification. And so what's happening with the magnification is it's the same thing. So we have this word magnify and it can mean two things. Like we're supposed to magnify the Lord, but here in the story, things get magnified that ought not to be magnified. And so that's a form of distortion because they're magnifying the wrong things. Everything that's evil and ugly is getting magnified and blown out of proportion. And later Kai starts to mimic people. And what is he mimicking? He's mimicking their foibles and their failings and he's making fun of them and he's making that seem and he's really good at imitating them people are like oh he's so clever he's so good at this but it's a kind of lie because he's only mimicking the things about them that are ugly or unattractive or foolish so this magnification image with the mirror and so like a distorted reflection a magnification is all it's all related to this idea of misseeing and being and basically and being a lie right the the mirror lies and it's just the distortive powers and the magnification of one thing at the expense of other things and usually the magnification of something bad in the story as, um, at the expense of something good is a kind of lie and so who's the father of lies the devil right so it's all tied together oh that's that is yeah honestly so helpful um and thinking about and so so encouraging to think about because it makes you realize like want, want to cling to yes. the good more and know that and know that good is stronger. A yes. good reality is better than a lying mirror so, yes. so easily. So you also made me think of um, Albert Moeller, the, um, I think he's, yeah, he's the, the head of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He looked into the noetic effects of the fall. So how the fall affects the way we think and how our minds work. And there were like wow. 14 of them. I can't remember all of them, but one was like, it was so, it was so interesting. So one of them was like, our minds mm -hmm. get tired and we can't mm -hmm. think very well. And so the distorting aspects of the mirror you're talking about, like, yep, the fall corrupts yes. all of creation. And of course us, that's, that's, that's obviously yes. the human heart. Yeah, that's. That's actually really fascinating. I hadn't thought about, I mean, of course, the fall corrupts our minds as well as our bodies and our souls and everything, but that's, that's fascinating that he's done a whole study on it. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to link it in the show notes because I, I can't remember. I think he has a, either a full book or a talk on it. But yeah, the corruption. So of our thoughts and feelings. So it gets into Kai's yes. eyes and heart, which the eyes yes. are the lamp of the body. Right. And when we talk about eyes and sight, like one of the things that we have to keep in mind is like to be able to see is a way of, it's a colloquial way of saying, I understand, or I know like, oh, I see that. Right. And so mm -hmm. the fact that his sight is distorted and his vision is being skewed is also skewing his knowledge and his ability to perceive truth. So of course, eventually he's no longer able to remember the Lord's prayer and he's no longer able to spell the word eternity because his mind is being, has been along with his vision, the two things are tied together, vision and knowledge. And so those two things are being distorted and eventually frozen. Yeah, yeah. And then, so that makes me think of like how often the Lord talks about knowing him mm -hmm. as, as life, yes. being life in his name. And to be frozen is to be dead. You can't move, you can't change, you can't do anything. You can't love. Yeah. 
Yes, it's, it's cold. It's yeah, it's cold. It's hard. Exactly. When you say someone is cold hearted, like we mean they, they don't love well or they don't love at all. Right. And so the having the heart become a lump of ice through the shards of mirror that get lodged in it um, is a really apt metaphor for what happens when we are separated from the source of life That's and love. Beautiful. Well, sinister, but you know, beautiful in, in the in the truth that it speaks to. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me next about the rooftop garden that they have between their houses. Yes. So the rooftop garden is, so it's, first of all, it's up in the, the eaves of their houses. So it's up high. It's a garden. I tell my students when I read, when, when if they're reading something and there's a garden and it's, especially if it's a raised garden of some kind, it's up high, like they should be thinking Eden. And here mm -hmm. we have a girl and a boy in a state of innocence in a garden that's up high. And Anderson even uses the word heavenly to describe the garden. So all the way around, we're supposed to think of the Garden of Eden. This is the mm -hmm. Garden of Eden before the fall, right? And it is, they're in a state of innocence. And the um, inside, in the garden, there are these two rose bushes, one in each box one in the box of Kai's family and one in the box from Gerda's family. And then they have stools underneath the rose bushes and they sit there and they read together and they play together in God's bright sunshine. That's Anderson mm -hmm. saying that. And they often, they even kiss the roses. So there's a lot of rose imagery happening throughout the story. We can trace that through. And one of the things that I think is that the roses are actually symbolic of Kai and Gerda themselves and that because they're alive, they're blooming, they're fresh, they're creative, they're close to heaven, they're in a state of innocence. And then what happens when Kai first gets the shard of, of mirror in his eye and his heart? Well, the first thing that happens is he misses Gerda. She's crying and he says, how horrid you look. And she's crying because mm -hmm. she's empathizing with him and he's rejecting that, how horrid you look. And then he misses himself. He says, there's nothing wrong with me. And then he misses the roses he th sees that they have a, one of them is eaten by a worm, the other one is crooked, like they're not perfect. And that's kind of really important to Kai that it'd be perfect. We'll talk about that with the snowflakes in a little mm -hmm. bit. And so then he takes the roses and he throws them at her. He breaks them off the bush and he throws them at her. Um, so there's this like literal fall where he's breaking something mm -hmm. off and throwing it on the ground. And then he disappears into his window and he has to go Death. Where's the only place he can go once he's inside? He can only go down. So we've got this fall, um, definitely this fall imagery. But later in the story, both of them are compared to roses. So Gerda, when she's in the witch's garden, the witch is brushing her hair, and it says it curled around her face, which looked like a rose. And then later, after Gerda rescues Kai and she hugs him, it says his cheeks bloomed. And so there's this idea of he is being restored to that rose-like, rosy innocence um, after his rest or after his rescue from Gerda. So I do think that the roses are um, they're symbolic of life and hope and innocence, but they're also symbolic of Gerda and Kai in their both in their pre-fall state and then later in their restored state. Oh, that's beautiful. And yeah, definitely one of the things I love about fairy tale studies is that when you look at a certain image, it, it makes sense. And it makes sense not just like head knowledge, but heart knowledge. If you've listened to enough stories and you begin to see like how the literary imagine, imagination works yes. together. So roses being like good and mm -hmm. life and love makes sense to me. So Kimberly, mm -hmm. it's fine if you didn't, but I'm curious, did you look at roses in scripture and work with in that tradition at all when you did this for your study? I did not do that for this study. The image when you were talking about roses, literarily, the first thing that came to my mind was the um, image, I think it's in Isaiah of the roses in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh my goodness, that's what happens. Like 
the wilderness of the North Pole and the frozen wasteland that Kai is in in the castle of the Snow Queen. And then what happens? Gerda comes in and she brings with her life and light and love and she kisses him and then his cheeks bloom and there's roses in the wilderness. Mm, that's beautiful. Like scripture is so attentive to the physical dimension of things, like how mustard seeds work and mm -hmm. then can can bridge the gap from the physical, obviously teaching us about the spiritual world. So yes. oh, that's wonderful. Snowflakes. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, when I was doing my first close reading of this story was the way in which the snowflakes are like an inverted rose or a frozen rose. They're compared to flowers. So in that scene where they're in the upper room with grandmother and she says, oh, look at the snow bees. And then she says the snow queen comes and then there are frost flowers on the windows. But they're not really flowers. They're frozen. Right. And then later this Kai is home and he sees a snowflake fall on the window or on the garden box outside his window. So it's, and then it starts to grow and it grows and grows and grows, but it's not growing like a rose grows, right? Mm -hmm. It's not growing like a flower. It's growing by magnification. So here's that image of magnification again and distortion. And so it's a distorted rose. It's a distorted flower. And so the snowflakes become sort of this inverse image of a, of a living flower. They seem to grow, but they're not actually growing. They're not organic. They're frozen. They're cold. And then Kai, when he looks at it under the microscope he's, or under the magnifying glass, he's like, see how perfect they are? Unlike the roses, because they're organic, they can have little flaws in them, but the snowflakes are perfect because they're icy and cold and every crystal is perfectly formed. And so there's this image, this imagery in Kai in his fallen state with the shard of glass in his eye and the shard of glass in his heart. Um, he prefers the icy snowflakes because they're perfect. He even says that they're clever. And then later when he meets the Snow Queen again, after he, um, after she kisses him twice and makes him forget everything back home, he looks at her and he thinks her face is the most beautiful and clever face he could imagine. Mm -hmm. So he's really interested in cleverness at this point and in being clever. And that's why he tries to impress her with his ability to, you know, do figures in his head, even with fractions and all of the you know, populations of the world and their square mileage or whatever. It's because he's trying to be clever and to impress her. And even his imitating of the grandmother is this desire for cleverness. And so roses are beautiful, but the snowflake, because it's it's an inverse image, it takes that beauty and it turns it into this sort of glib cleverness. And everything that Kai does is like through this lens of like, is it clever? Is it going to be, is it going to make me look good in front of other people? Am I going to be able to, you know? And so it's just a distortion, the snowflake and the way that it affects him. It distorts his vision. It distorts his desires. It distorts everything about what he has been and who he has been. And it makes him, you know, it's alienating. It's very alienating. And that's one of the things that Vegan Groyan points out. He says that the heart of evil and the Snow Queen is the cold heart of a self in isolation. And of course, we see that so clearly at the end of the story when Kai is alone in the palace of the Snow Queen by himself. She's not even there. Mm -hmm. Like she's gone off and he's, she's left him alone. And so he's completely been abandoned and he's alone in himself and he's almost frozen through. Oh man, so so it's it's so it's so powerful in that again that the the physical reality of cold mirroring mirroring mm -hmm. death, mirroring isolation, mirroring yes. evil. So yes. I wonder because the snowflakes like their beauty like it's it's mathematical for him. It's yes, um, yes. Crystal. So it feels like Hans Christian Andersen does not like math. 
Um, <laughs> and my mom yes. it seems he, he, he sort of tries to say the Lord's Prayer, which would have mm-hmm. would have worked maybe like a call for help. And he can only yes. remember the multiplication table. Like that's pretty bad. Yes. Yes. And and later he's sitting on the 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 mirror of reason. So there's another mirror at the end of the book. Like there's the devil's mirror at the beginning, and then at the end, Kai is sitting on the mirror of reason. And I think it's fascinating that it's called the mirror of reason. But what Kai has actually lost mm. is the ability to reason. He can't reason because his mind is frozen because it's fallen. Right? It's got that shard of he's got that shard of glass in his eye, and so he can't actually think mm. clearly, and he can't do the one thing that he needs to do to be able to be free of this enchantment that he's under, which is to spell the word eternity. So, um, so I do think that, that there's a relationship there. Yeah, that's really cool. And, um, and so Gerda coming as, as the, the rescuer, the, the savior yes. figure, she's able to make the bridge from living Rose to, to cold dead mm-hmm. snowflake through yes. her tears. So yes. another state of water. Yes. And they're hot tears, which I just think is, you know, and they're, they're hot tears in the garden of the witch when she goes to, you know, when she first, she cries and because there's no roses, she realizes that the roses are the thing that's missing, that she's been missing this whole time are the roses. And so she cries these hot tears and they fall into the earth and then the roses spring up, right? So this is like a foreshadowing of Kai who's being buried in the ice and snow and her tears are going to bring him back to, um, back to life. Um, from the the death in which he is trapped, the earth, the burial, all those mm-hmm. images. Um, and so, but they're hot, which is a contrast to the cold. They're hot and they're they're actually wet, like you said, it's water as opposed to the cold frozenness of all the ice that's around them in the Snow Queen's palace. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this image of, it's an image of warmth, right? Like the story mm-hmm. ends and it's warm, glorious summer. And so this idea of summer being life and light and warmth and beauty and all of the roses in bloom and contrasted with the cold frozenness of the Snow Queen's palace. And so her tears are partaking of that sort of summery image because they're warm and they're fluid. Oh, that's beautiful. And it reminds me so much. I don't, I don't know. Have I talked about it on the podcast? I don't think I have, but my master's dissertation, I looked at the deadly sins of sloth and anger together and I, I went through I, honestly I'm, I'm surprised how much stuff I crammed into that dissertation I looked at four <laughs> quartets and the Lord of the Rings and Paralandra oh my goodness and wow. yeah so it's kind of a miracle I managed to all make it in there but one of the things I loved about studying sloth was so many people found so many good images for that sin it, it's well known for being laziness mm-hmm. but that's the secularized post-enlightenment mm-hmm. understanding the, the real, the, the true sin of sloth, the, the old word is acedia from the yes. Latin, the lack of love for God. Mm. And um, it's, it's contrasted to being able to grieve because if you're grieving and crying, that means you care because mm-hmm. sloth is, is just cold indifference. Like ice is a very good image. Like you don't care about other people's suffering. You don't care about this good and beautiful living world we're in. It's a turning away from the good. So that occurs to me too, that you, you turn away and even cleverness doesn't, being clever is not satisfying or life-giving or good in the way that loving is. That's a very good reminder right. for me. Like, I, I like, I like to sound clever, but. We all like to, we all like to sound clever, Alicia. It's not just mm-hmm. you. We live in a culture that really values cleverness and it's 
pretty countercultural to say, mm, no, I'm going to choose to be kind or I'm going to choose to be loving and to turn your back. It doesn't mean that we can't ever be clever, but to make cleverness, cleverness is not a virtue. And we've made it into this thing that we value so highly. It's not a virtue. And, but love is a virtue, right? Yes. Compassion and kindness and caring for other people. Those are all virtues. Those are things mm-hmm. that draw us into relationship. Cleverness is often at the expense of other people. And so it's an alienating and isolating thing. And it's, and that's we see that really clearly in the Snow Queen because Kai's cleverness is alienating him from other people. It makes them think, oh, he's really good at that. Oh, isn't he clever? But it doesn't draw him into relationship. It actually alienates him from the grandmother. It alienates him from Gerda. It alienates him from his friends because he's making fun of everybody in the street. Yeah, well, it it made me think of flippancy. When C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, he talks about the four kinds of humor. The flippancy, he said, uh, it's a thousand miles from joy. And his definition yes. is that flippancy is just to, to take something virtuous or good and just laugh at it as if it's ridiculous by nature. Laughing at the nature of God, which the mirror tried to do. Right. Right. <laughs> and destroyed and, itself in the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the the flippancy um, of, of just trying to dismiss something which hurts you. And I mean, we can't, um, you know, God, God is not mocked. Yeah. And I think that we hurt ourselves when we're mocking even, you know, cause again, he was mocking the, the silly things about people and echo, you know, magnifying their foibles and that didn't serve him in any way either. It was alienating. Mm-hmm. So he just made him increasingly cold and increasingly isolated from other people. So what does that do? Like that's like the cold heart and isolation in this story. That's the nature of evil and that's the heart of evil. So like flippancy as a kind of a, a way in to that is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, yeah, again, again, a, a really valuable reminder. So Kimberly, what were, what were some of the, the most, like your, your favorite things that you learned from this study and what would you say to someone who wants to do a re- like a creative artist who wants to retell this this fairy tale, considering like a theological reading and, and scriptural imagery? Yeah, I don't know that you would have to do a whole lot to change it in terms of your second question. I don't know that you have to do a whole lot to change it. I mean, it's already so deeply and richly theological. Theologically rich. It's mm-hmm. very theologically rich. I didn't say that very well. Um, but it's got a lot of theological richness already built into the story. And so the main thing I would say, if you're trying to retell this in a different setting or, you know, like make it a whatever, whatever mode you're trying to tell it in, just don't lose that. Like hang on to that spiritual and theological richness because that's what makes the story so profound and so like infinitely rereadable is that the depth of the spiritual of the the theological truths that it teaches about the nature of evil and the nature of goodness and the role of self-sacrifice. We haven't even talked about that with Gerda, mm. you know, like she is, you know, and all, and also the, like the danger of forgetfulness, right? I think it's fascinating mm. that both Gerda and Kai forget about each other in the course of the story. And both because of there's some sort of like witchy person <laughs> involved. In Gerda's case, she wasn't a bad witch, right? She just was selfish, um, which is its own form of badness. But she wasn't evil in the mm-hmm. way that evil is portrayed in the story, which is the cold heart of a self in isolation. She actually wants relationship. She wants Gerda to be there, but she's trying to isolate Gerda from all other relationships, which is not good. Mm-hmm. And so 
And she even causes all of her roses to be sent into the earth, basically swallowed up and buried. They die. There's this death imagery there um, in order for Gerda to not remember Kai. And then when the rose, when she cries and the roses come back up, she does remember Kai. And then she goes back to her journey to find him. And then when the Snow Queen kisses Kai, um, he forgets that he's cold first. And then she kisses him again. He forgets about Gerda and the grandmother and everybody else at home. So he's isolated in that way too. So, um, so I think that is really richly theological. And so that the biblical injunction to remember is, mm-hmm. is something it never comes up in the story, but there's, it's sort of like by, by its absence, the fact that people are forgetting and that it's the forgetfulness that makes them not be in relationship. And so this constant biblical injunction to remember, 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 is kind of in the background of the story, even though it's never stated the importance of remembering. And so I think there's so much that you could do with that. There's so much you can do with the imagery um, of the roses, the snowflakes, the mirror, the frozenness, the garden of Eden, and then the restoration. We didn't talk about that either. So at the mm. beginning, they're up in the garden. And then at the end, after Gerda rescues Kai, they come out, the reindeer takes them to the borders of the country. And then there's this miraculous spring, just like in Narnia, there's a miraculous mm-hmm. spring. And then by the time they get back home, it's summer and they go up the stairs to the rooftop garden and the grandmother is there. She's sort of this like wisdom figure. Um, mm-hmm. The grandmother is there and they sing that hymn. We didn't talk about the hymn either. Oh my goodness. In the mm-hmm. valley where the roses grow wild there, we will meet with the Christ child. And now they've been through the valley and now they're back on the mountain and they're back in that place of restored unity, communion, summer. And so all of the things that they started with are back again and they're grown ups, but they're children at heart. So there's been a change, but there's still that innocence, right? Mm-hmm. It's a new, a renewed innocence, the innocence of grown up people who can choose it as opposed to children for whom it is simply a natural state. So mm-hmm. there's a lot going on in the story. And I think if you keep the shape of it, um, Mm-hmm. You and and some of the imagery, you could do a really beautiful retelling. I mean, there's just so much here that you could work with. Definitely. Um, I'll be honest, the middle parts, which I just completely left out of my retelling, I'm just like, I felt so much of that. I just feel like it's just Anderson, like enjoying the sound of his own voice. Um, and it's like, so if I was going to retell it, like when I, when I retold it, I was like, I know what I'm dropping. Like, and just that whole, there's like three whole sections in the middle of the story, which is Gerda's adventures and like all of the like twists and turns that her story takes before she gets to the Snow Queen's palace. Um, it honestly, a lot of it feels like padding. Um, I don't feel like it adds as much to the story. I mean, it's fine, but it doesn't add much to the story. I think the story is clearer without it. If you were going to do a retelling, what I would suggest, like go back to the original, read those sections and figure out how you can rework them, especially if you're going to do it as a novel, you kind of need it to be longer. So I would figure out what can you do with those middle sections in which Gerda has all these adventures? What could you do with them that would play more clearly into the the overarching storyline and the images like how could you work these images of the mirror the the garden roses snowflakes um, distortion magnification those kinds of images how could you work those in um, into that middle section and maybe have Gerda's journey parallel Kai's a little more closely the way that it does in the witch's garden right where she's isolated and she's forgotten just like Kai is isolated and he's forgotten. So if you could make a little bit more mirroring um, in that that middle section of the two stories, um, that would be one way to to go about it. You might also, for a retelling, you might even consider 
getting a little close, more closely inside Kai's mind and what's happening there. Cause, um, and mm-hmm. like his adventures with the snow queen and how, you know, we see it's very, it's very fairy tale esque in the, in Anderson's story, because we just, we don't really get a close psychology of what's happening inside his mind. Manderson kind of tells us, he shows us a little bit, but it's, there's not very much to go on. And so that's another possibility for a retelling is, um, I don't think I could do it, um, but if somebody is able to like get inside what it looks like to have that frozen mind or that increasingly frozen mind, that might be really fascinating. And again, create a nice mirror to what Gerda is learning as she travels. I like that. And yeah, I, I totally agree. The middle parts feel like a distraction to me. I was like, what's going oh on? Oh my here? gosh. I know. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a few things in there that you're like, okay, I can see how that connects. But a lot of it is just, it really feels kind of rompy and it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't fit the tale of the rest of the tone of the rest of the tale. No. Yeah. It feels, feels so in, in a retelling, if you can make those pieces feel like they matter, feel like they had yes. to happen, which yes. I think honestly on, in a quest, everything that happens physically needs to be spiritual, which means it needs to be character development. She needs to be learning something. She can't, yes. both Kai, Kai and Gerda, they can't just go through something and be the exact same on the other side. Right. They need to have learned something or mm-hmm. grown in some way, matured in some way. Yeah. That's, I, I really like your quest structure for that reason. Yes. Yeah. And that would be a great way to do it. And if you were going to do that, then Gerda would have to have some kind of transformation too. She doesn't really have mm-hmm. much transformation in the story. Mm-hmm. Like she starts innocent. She has that little bit of like encounter. She encounters the world um, in those middle sections, but it doesn't really change her. Like her goal is to find Kai and she's doing everything she can to find Kai and like, and things are happening to her that prevent her from doing that. But after the witch's garden where she forgot after that, she never forgets again. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she's just constantly trying to find Kai and then things are happening to her that prevent her from finding him. But there's no, like, there's no character development for Gerda. Um, so if you were going to do a novel, there would have to be some kind of character development for her, which would, I think, be hard to do. I think you can do it, um, but it would be hard because like, that's part of Gerda's character is just mm-hmm. her rosy innocence, right? And it's because she's rosy and innocent and willing to come down from the rooftop Eden and go through the river, right? Mm-hmm. And then go to the frozen heart of evil to rescue Kai. I mean, it's all this Christological imagery, but, and that's part of like, that's part of, that's her journey, but it's also, um, there's no character development, right? Like she is just Gerda and -hmm. that's who she is. She's the Gerda who loves Kai and she's going to go get Kai, um, no matter what it costs her. And so if you were doing a novel, there'd probably have to be some kind of transformation of some kind in Gerda's character. Mm-hmm. And definitely, yeah, I I mean, that that immediately as a writer, I'm like, ooh, well, it could be this, this, or this. I mean, people <laughs> will, will decide on their own. But yeah, I could see something like, um, how does how does the innocence of a young child, which it's, I mean, young children are innocent, but a lot of that is ignorance. They don't, they are right. not prepared to take on the weight of, the, of sin's burdens and the evil in the world. Right. And that's that's natural. So how does she progress from that innocence of ignorance to like the chosen innocence of adulthood? Right. Because you can be an innocent adult, but it's it's not because you don't know all the evil things that are out there. Right. It's because you choose you, you choose humility or how, how do you choose that? So yeah, that's right. like a really good challenge. Like no, that. it would be a really amazing challenge. And if somebody writes that book, I want to read it. Yes. Yes. Kimberly, will you will you tell people more about where they can read more of your writing, more of your work, and anything else you're up to in the season? 
Sure. So um, the best place to get in touch with me is through my website, kcierton.com. If you go over there, I said this last fall to anyone who's listening, if you didn't go get the first two chapters of my new story, it's not new anymore. It was new then. It was published in September. My story collection that was published in September, um, you can get the first two chapters of the title story, which is almost a novella. It's called A Yellow Wood. It's about a young woman, who, American woman, who's in England helping her grandmother clean out her great-grandmother's house and she finds a stash of sonnets and she's really intrigued by these and she goes on a journey metaphorically speaking to find out who wrote them and along the way she experiences she her own healing as well as finding friendship and love so if you're interested in something like that please go read the first two chapters on my website you can just enter your email address on my homepage. And then also I have started a sub stack and over on my sub stack, you can get a fairy tale retelling. It's called Rose at Dawn. So I'm assuming from the title, people will know what fairy tale I'm retelling. Um, and it's set in kind of Victorian England kind of feel. So head on over to Substack um, and grab your free, your free copy of Rose at Dawn. Okay, well, uh, yeah, I am. I'm so excited to read that because, yeah, I do. I well, as evidenced by the existence of this podcast, love a good fairy tale retelling, and a yellow wood was was so beautiful and so so good and and wholesome. Really, really fed my soul. Yeah, sounds good. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Oh, Alicia, it was my pleasure. It's always so much fun to talk with you. It just it fills me up. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.